theologian, and what I wanted you to hear is that she says that grace and gratitude and gifts all have the same root word in Greek. It's charis. The Greek word charis occurs 10 times in two chapters of 2 Corinthians. It occurs five times in the verses that I'm going to read for you this morning. It gets translated into English as grace, as privilege, as a generous act, as thanks, and as blessing. Our passage is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, and the English substitutions for charis are in bold in this passage. Paul is writing to the Gentile Christians, the wealthy Gentile Christians in Corinth, to ask them to contribute to a collection for the impoverished Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And the Macedonian churches, that's the churches in Philippi and in Thessalonica, have already contributed. They've embraced this offering, and Paul is sending Titus out to collect. So this is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the first nine verses. Paul wrote, We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been granted to the churches of Macedonia. For doing, during a, a severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For as I can testify, they voluntarily gave according to their means, and even beyond their means, begging us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in this ministry to the saints. And this, not merely as we expected, they gave themselves first to the Lord and by the will of God to us, so that we might urge Titus that as he has already made a beginning, so he should also complete this generous undertaking among you. Now, as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and utmost eagerness and in our love for you, so we want you to also excel in this generous undertaking. I do not say this as a command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that by his poverty you might also become rich. This is a story of God, and it is for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The last few weeks, uh, some of us on the church staff have been recorded reading children's stories, bedtime stories, and then the videos are sent out in a weekly parent email, and they can also be found on the church website. Uh, it is meant to be a help to weary parents in the year 2020. This started me thinking about one of my favorite bedtime stories as a child, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Poor Alexander. He wakes up with gum in his hair. At breakfast, there's only breakfast cereal in the breakfast cereal box, no toy. In the carpool, he is smushed in the back seat. His teacher doesn't like his work. His friends leave him out. There's no dessert in his lunchbox. His dentist finds a cavity in his mouth. 
An elevator door closes on his foot. There's lima beans for dinner. His bath is too hot. He bites his tongue and his Mickey Mouse nightlight burns out. The closing wisdom of the book is some days are like that, even in Australia. A similar wisdom is helpful not only for the year 2020, but also when reading 2 Corinthians. Some years are like that, even for the Apostle Paul. This letter that's written by Paul is its probably a compilation of letters written as Paul moves around northern Greece late in the year 56 or early in the year 57. And Paul's most recent experience of life is quite simply terrible, horrible, and no good. He's just been released from prison in Ephesus where N.T. Wright in his biography of the apostle says that Paul experienced torture at a deep level. His emotions, his imagination, and his innermost heart were crushed. And just because someone flings the door wide open doesn't mean that then everything is okay. There are memories and nightmares and voices and mental scars that remain for Paul. He has a sorrowful, a sorrowful visit with Titus, and then there is a painful letter that he writes to Corinth, because, to Corinth because you see in Corinth, people are suggesting that Paul get some new references to return. The instruction that he get new references is coming from friends, people that he knows, people that he's prayed with, people that he wrote that wonderful poem of love to that we know as 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And N.T. Wright says that a nightmare plays out in Paul's head. It's a scene that he never expected to see in Corinth, angry faces, Raised voices, friends looking the other way or just absenting themselves, telling him that he is out of line, that he is no longer needed. What should Paul do? Well, I can tell you what the common wisdom is currently among church leaders. Gene Fowler is a pastor with a PhD from Princeton. He recently wrote a book about church dynamics and clergy, and Fowler says, when the collective judgment of a pastor is negatively influenced, when seeds of doubt are sown, when weariness takes hold of the congregation, the pastor might try to turn the situation around, but it is a fool's errand. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is evidence to us that Paul takes on a fool's errand. Why would he do this? Why would he do it? His influence is shot. The Corinthians aren't asking for his advice. Why does he think that he can ask for their support? Well, here's what I think. What I think is that Paul's not betting on himself. Paul's not even betting on his project, the collection for the Christians in Jerusalem. Instead, Paul is betting on God's grace. 
He is betting on the dynamics of grace, and he is inviting the Corinthians and us into the flow of grace. This is what he calls in verse 2, an overflow of generosity that the Macedonians have taken part in. We typically think of grace as undeserved love that God just showers on us from above, and this is true, but there's more to see. There is more about grace to see. Grace is not just a periodic deposit of God's love that we receive. It is a stream of goodness. It is a continuation of love. We receive it. We recognize it. We regenerate it and push it back into the world. Diana Butler Bass described the flow or the throw of chorus from God and our response of love and grace expressed toward God and expressed toward our neighbor. This is, she said, what is the territory of grace. It is the place where faith lives. It is the place where faith thrives in the trust of chorus. In part, in part, it reminds me of a good game of catch. You have to see the ball and the frisbee. You have to catch it, and then you have to throw it back, right? Not much happens if you just catch the ball and set it down and wait for the next ball or frisbee to come. You know, that's how our very untrained retriever plays fetch, and it's not much fun. There's no action. Blessings, gifts, graces. They're not to grip, they're not to possess, they're not to hold on too tightly, to hoard. You know, a constipated spirit is a heartbreaking sight. Richard Rohr teaches that there is a cooperation with grace that we take part in, a cooperation with grace that is important to recognize. It increases with usage, he says. So God gives you enough and then God hides to see how you use it. If you use it, you always get more. If you don't use it, you regress. This summer, I read a description of the worship service at a church called the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, Colorado. And for more than 10 years, when the church gathers on Sundays, the pastor says, we consider gratitude and generosity to be spiritual practices of our community. So there's a book. There's a book where you can write that for which you are thankful, and there's a basket to leave an offering. And when I read that description of worship, I thought, man, this is great because both gratitude and generosity are important. How wonderful it is that that community has developed practices for these two central principles. What I didn't see this summer that I see now after studying 2 Corinthians and, and Paul is that it's the very same fundamental principle. It's not two separate principles. Gratitude and, generation, and, gratitude and generosity are both participating in the flow of grace. You see, gratitude is the recognition of that grace, and then generosity is the outflow. 
the final announcement in that church at the House for All Sinners and Saints is that all are welcome at the table. Nobody's excluded. Everyone without exception is invited. And that I see as the shower of grace. So in worship, that community marks the shower of grace. All are invited to the table. They mark the recognition of grace in a book of gratitude. And they mark the regeneration of grace in a generous offering. And this seems right to me. It seems like actively participating in the flow of the generous stream of faith, the flow of the generous stream of charis. This week, this week I heard that the current estimation for food impoverished people in the United States is 54 million. 54 million people who wonder where their next meal is coming from. In Los Angeles, California, there is a group that gathers once a week in the parking lot of a currently closed cafe to receive donations from farms, from food banks, from grocery stores, and then to distribute that food to people in need. Most weeks, they are saying that they feed more than 1,000 people. The adults in the group claim that it's powered by the youth, by the children. The youth are the catalysts, said one adult. They are driving this thing forward. The owner of the cafe that sits next to the parking lot is a man named Demetrius. And Demetrius was asked by a reporter, how much longer can you do this? How much longer can you coordinate this thing before you, Demetrius, are in need of the help that you are offering. And he said, I keep thinking at some point it's going to dry up, but it just keeps going. I can't stop this thing. I can't stop it because it is changing me. I can't stop it because it's changing me. And that to me is a picture of the chorus that Paul was writing about 2,000 years ago, it still happens. It still flows in our world today. It changes us, and it grows us for the better. I noticed in church news this week that the bishop of the North Texas Conference of our church presented a big evangelism award that I guess he presents every year, but he presented it this year not to a pastor, but to a layperson, a layperson who for three years was homeless and often slept on the steps of Oak Lawn United Methodist Church in Dallas. Her name is Billie Jean Baker, and she is credited with bringing people into the church, bringing them into the church for food, bringing them into the church for shelter on nights when the temperature is below freezing, and even bringing people in for worship. She also, this year, in the year 2020, airs the live stream worship for her neighbors in the apartment building where she lives. She was asked about her strategy for evangelism. What was her strategy for spreading the gospel? And here's her quote, I just do the next right thing. <laughs> I do the next right thing. That is participating in the flow of grace, isn't it? We seek to do the next right thing. 
We live in the confidence of the good news. And as Paul wrote it, it is this. Though our Lord Jesus Christ was rich, he became poor so that we also might become rich. That's an overflow of generosity. It is an overflow of generosity that continue to pours, that continues to pour out, and it continues to change all of us. Will you pray with me? Lord God, you are ruler of the universe. You generously send love our way. We seek to notice all that is good. We seek to notice the gifts that sustain our lives and transform our souls, and we count them and name them silently before you now. Thank you for these gifts. Lord, we desire to do the next right thing, to send grace back out into your world. We want to live in and for your grace. We ask these things in the name of the one who loved fully and completely, Jesus the Christ. Amen.